Good Sunday morning, everyone. So very good to be with you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is a favorite passage of my family's. It's really uh, a, a passage that summarize, uh, summarizes uh, our philosophy of ministry. It's a ministry passage. Do you have a, a life verse, perhaps, anyone? Uh, a verse that is uh, a verse that kind of governs uh, how you look at the Christian life. Uh, perhaps you also have a passage that uh, governs how you think about the privilege we all have to uh, to serve and to give. This passage is uh, such a passage for us. It's a favorite of mine, and I trust it will be of challenge and encouragement to you. I wonder if we could pray again together. And as we pray together, asking our great God and Heavenly Father two things. Asking that distractions would be taken away and that we indeed would be taught today through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is we need to hear. Uh, So let's just come before the throne of grace and ask again for his help. Father, what a privilege it is to be here. I thank you for... Uh, the sweet opportunity you've given me to be with these uh, dear folks. Uh, we thank you for the, we, the way that you lead and guide, protect and provide. And I just thank you for, uh, I thank you for this opportunity to be here and open your word. Father, we would ask that today you would take away distractions. Uh, we lost an hour. Life is full of all kinds of distractions And we pray that you might just take those away this morning. We pray that we might be able to think clearly and might see the importance of what your word has for us today. We pray that we would also be taught whatever it is you want us to learn. Encourage us as we need to be encouraged. Convict us as we need to be convicted. We would ask and pray. We pray that the Holy Spirit, that he would illuminate your truth, that we might see it plainly and clearly, and that we might uh, not just hear it, but that we would do it. Help us, we pray, to this end we ask in the worthy name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I graduated from Dallas Seminary. As Steve mentioned, I attended Emmaus Bible College and then went straight to Dallas Seminary. Uh, graduated in 1994, 1994. I moved from Dallas, straight from Dallas to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Had the privilege of serving at a local church there at, uh, the name of it was at the time College Heights Chapel, uh, now known as New Heights Chapel. And I served there in full-time ministry, working primarily with young people and college ministry, but I also was involved in a business with one of the elders, it's just a dear, dear friend of mine to this day. His family is uh, kind of my adopted family. And he had a billboard advertising business. And I had no idea what the billboard advertising business was all about. But he asked if I would be willing to be involved in sales and marketing for this uh, small billboard advertising business. And so I had the privilege to learn on the job and interact with individuals that might want to advertise on the billboards that this company owned. I cannot drive by a billboard to this day 
without evaluating its read time and accessibility? Is it illuminated from dusk till dawn? And what words are carefully selected in order for the vehicles that pass by to clearly see, have the time to read and understand? Most of the time, there are too many words on the advertisement. Have you noticed that? Less is always more. There was a slogan back in the day when I was involved in this business, a slogan that asks a very important question. It's our question for today. This company wanted, uh, when this question was raised and asked, they wanted an immediate response. This is the question. What do you want on your tombstone? What do you think their desired response was? Pepperoni or sausage or the works. You see, Tombstone Frozen Pizza had a very catchy and clever advertising campaign. What do you want on your tombstone? Some of us uh, uh, enjoyed some pizza last night. And that's the whole idea behind the provoking question for this company. What do you want on your tombstone? It's an important question for us to ask and answer as well. If you had to pick a word, one word or a phrase that you would be remembered by, what would it be? How do you want to be regarded? How do you want to be known? What do you want written on your tombstone? In these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul really shares with us that reality. Uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he does that as well at the end of his life when he knows that his life is over. He clearly communicates that he, he fought, he finished, he kept. Those are great words to be remembered by, don't you think? I fought the good fight. I have finished the, the race, the course that has been set before me. I've kept the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says it this way. Let a man regard us in this manner. Paul was talking about himself and others that were serving alongside him at the time in ministry. And he says, when you think of me, when you think of us, here's what I want you to think of. Here's how we want to be known. Here's how we want to be remembered. Here's how we want to be regarded. Here's what we would like on our tombstone, if you will. My mind's simple, so I love when things are very memorable. And so he shares two words with us. They both start with the letter S, and they help us understand and hear the heart of Paul in regards to ministry. He begins and says it this way, let a man regard us in this manner as first servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. The word servant here is different than the word servant he used in the previous chapter. This word servant has a, a unique understanding and rendering and it, it, it's supposed to uh, conjure up and have us picture in our mind a, a sailing vessel of the day. 
a boat or a a a ship, if you will, that had several decks or tiers to it. And on the bottom of this particular sailing vessel, you would find this word, the servants. It has the idea of an under rower. I love this time of year. I love this time of year when uh, we are thinking carefully, as we ought to all the time, but thinking carefully about the the finished work of Christ. What a great announcement to say on Easter Sunday, we want to have someone, uh, you want to have someone, someone will demonstrate in the most effective object lesson ever, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the burial and the resurrection. What a great picture of the greatest feat the world has ever seen, the finished work of Christ through water baptism, a picture of spirit baptism that happens the moment uh, a person is saved. And I, I especially love this season. I was saved uh, when I was around eight years of old, around Easter time. I remember watching uh, with my family uh, what was entitled uh, then uh, um, the equivalent of the Passion of Christ. Um, I'm, I'm not recalling that title. It'll come to me. Uh, but a motion picture, if you will, of the Lord Jesus and his finished work. And I was sitting with my family at the time, and I knew the gospel message. I remembered uh, and knew who Christ is and what he had done, but I was unsure of my eternal security. So I, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was the title of that, uh, that film at the time. Uh, I remember talking to my mom and talking to my dad and saying, I'm just not sure if I, if I'm saved. So we went through the gospel uh, again, anew and afresh, and I made a decision that particular uh, Christmas, uh, Easter season to trust once and for all, in the person of Christ as my Savior. My mom had made some pumpkin pies, I recalled, and I consumed most of one in grand celebration uh, of the assurance uh, of my uh, eternal life. It's a great time of year. I wonder what you are doing intentionally uh, to remember uh, the finished work of Christ during this important season. The Glock family has a tradition we love to watch Ben-Hur. Have, you, have, have any of you watched it? This is a great time of year to watch it. The old version is always better. The new version is well done as well. I must uh, uh, add and interject. But there's a picture in that particular uh, presentation of Judah Ben-Hur, who indeed was an under rower. He was shackled. He was at the bottom of this boat or sailing vessel. And there was someone seated in in front of, or rather standing in front of the under rowers. And that individual would just lay down the cadence in which they were to row, row, row someone else's boat. Often not so merrily down the stream. And so the individuals standing before the under-rowers on occasion would say, ramming speed, 
and they would have to pick up the pace at which they rode. They were shackled. They were owned. They belonged to someone else. They were under rowers. And that's how Paul wanted to be remembered. That's how he wanted to be regarded. That's how he wanted to be known. Not only himself, but Apollos and others who were serving alongside Paul. Let a man regard us in this manner as under rowers. As servants of somebody else. As those who have been bought. As those who have been purchased. As those who have been redeemed out of the enslavement to sin and now belong to him. Under rowers. Let a man regard us as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ that we we indeed serve. We serve the Lord Christ, and Paul had that heartbeat and desire. That's how he wanted to be known. But then he goes on to mention another word, the second word, that also begins with the letter S, that helps us remember this passage and stewards stewards what comes to mind when you think of the word stewards and i know there are many ministries that quickly pop to mind stewards foundation stewards ministries stewards advisory services believers stewardship services formally But more importantly than those ministries, what does the word represent? What does the word steward convey? May I ask, am I allowed to ask for some participation? When you think of the word steward, what synonym comes to mind? Management Management is a big part of it. That's right. Administration. Any other words that come to mind? There's a responsibility. Thank you for that. There's this uh, seriousness behind the word steward because the owner of property, the owner of an estate, the owner of cattle, the owner of business would be looking for someone that evidenced and displayed certain characteristics where they could indeed say, this is mine. I own it, but I am entrusting it to you to take good care of what is mine by right and yours by responsibility. That's the word or the understanding behind the word steward. Someone who has been entrusted with something that belongs to someone else And it's their responsibility to take good care of what has been entrusted to them. Paul's specific when he talks about what has been entrusted to him. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants, under rowers of Christ, and stewards of what? Stewards of the the mysteries of God. Paul, in his last will and testament to his son in the faith, Timothy, will say, guard uh, through the Holy Spirit this treasure that has been entrusted to you. That's a stewardship statement. 
In that same passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, retain the standard of sound words. Jude. Jude uh, is greatly concerned about the culture of the day. 25 verses, the book of Jude. And in it, he desperately wants to talk about salvation that uh, is found in his uh, half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude and James trusted in Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection. Isn't that amazing to think about? They grew up with him in the same household with him. And yet after his finished work, not until his finished work, did they place their faith in him. And Jude wants to talk all about salvation that is found in the Lord Jesus. But he says, I can't. I can't because there is something important I need to challenge you with. And that is that we need to earnestly fight for something to contend earnestly for the faith. The faith representing the complete canon of Scripture that has been entrusted to us. And Paul, when he says, you know how I want to be remembered? You know how I want to be regarded? You know how I want to uh, uh, be remembered or what I want on my tombstone? It's these two words. An underrower for Christ of Christ and a steward of the special revelation of God to us, the mysteries of God. I want to take good care of it. It's required, moreover, Paul goes on to say in the the next portion of this passage, it's required, moreover, that a steward be found, uh, what word does your translation have as you're carefully following in the text? That a steward be found Faithful or trustworthy. Those are crucial words for us to understand when we think about taking good care of what has been entrusted to us. I had a a favorite course in seminary um, entitled Biblical Discipleship, a course taught by uh, one of the recent presidents of Dallas Seminary, a guy named uh, Dr. Mark Bailey. And Dr. Bailey uh, talked about seven marks or characteristics or distinctions of a disciple of Christ, uh, a learner and liver of what Christ thought and taught. And one of those characteristics is something we began considering yesterday in our time together. It's the recognition of the true ownership of all that we are and all that we have. This idea of giving up the right or ownership of all of our possessions. And I recall, uh, I recall going through, uh, all sorts of conversations and instruction and discussion about stewardship. And there are four principles, uh, that I gleaned and was taught in the classroom and have held on to tightly in regards to this concept of stewardship. I'd like to share them with you. I have a handout, uh, actually an article based upon this passage that summarizes a few of our thoughts for today. Uh, so these points that I share with you will be in that if you so desire. Number one is this. God is the owner, and I've alluded to this, but God is the owner of all that we are 
and all that we have. And I want to ask you plainly at 11 to, uh, 1026, do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is the owner of all that we are and all that we have? Every good, James tells us, doesn't he? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the, the father of lights. God is the owner of all that we are and all that we have. Secondly, God has entrusted to us what is his by right and ours by responsibility. Perhaps you heard me weave that in earlier, but there's a second point of stewardship. God is the, God has entrusted to us rather what is his by right and ours by responsibility. What were those two words that described a steward? It is required moreover that a steward be found trustworthy or faithful. And so this third aspect of stewardship is the following. Faithfulness is our primary obligation of stewards of God's gift. And finally, fourthly, when we'll see this in this passage, rewards are God's blessing for faithful service. Paul says, here's how I want to be known. Here's how I want to be regarded. Here's how I want to be remembered. Here's what I want on my tombstone. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants, underrowers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And I want to ask you this question about stewardship before we proceed in our text for the morning. By way of broad practical application, what is it that he has entrusted to us that he wants us to take good care of? That we are to be stewards of? This question could provide a lengthy conversation and discussion when we say this is something that he's entrusted to us and this is something that he's entrusted to us. Time, talents, and treasures are things that, uh, words that have been used to describe stewardship. His word, as Paul specifically contextually describes here, his, his message, uh, his means that he provides us with, myself as the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are to take good care of our thoughts. Be good stewards of what we think about and good stewards of what we hear and good stewards of what we listen to and good stewards of what we, uh, uh, what we post and tweet and the, um, and the list goes on. You see, stewardship, I want to convey and I'm attempting to, stewardship involves everything. Everything. He owns it all. And from the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, I'd share with you just a, a brief summary of when I did uh, in April of 76 or 77. From the moment we trust in uh, Christ as our personal Savior to the moment we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, that is the evaluation only for believers it's all a matter of stewardship. 
and the evaluation of our stewardship from the moment we trust in him to the moment we stand before him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just the previous chapter, Paul went into great detail to describe the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. It's the best passage, or I would suggest the most thorough passage in describing the process of the judgment seat. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But he alludes to it in this passage as well. And I would suggest to you this, as we carefully study the writings of Paul that you can detect and see in all his writings an emphasis on the judgment seat of Christ. An event that should affect our each and every day. It's appropriate, it's biblical for us to say that we ought to be living today in light of that day, that day. That day, Paul uses that expression uh, at least three times in his last will and testament. You see, the judgment seat of Christ is an event that ought to motivate a believer to be a faithful and trustworthy steward. And the rest of this passage, Paul really has that event in mind. Let me ask you this question. How often do you think about the judgment seat of Christ as a believer? Our brother Steve took us to 1 John uh, this morning. In 1 John chapter 2, a little later in the chapter, verse 28, it says, Now little children, abide, stay, remain, continue in him, so that when he appears, there's two options. Listen to this. This is unbelievable. Two options for a believer. That when he appears, we may have, this is the best option, we have may have confidence as a, a believer So that we would, here's the second option, which is not the one we ought to choose, that we would shrink away in shame or fear at his appearing. You see, the judgment seat of Christ is something that can and should change the way we think and live. That if we are longing for and looking for our blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul writes to Titus, that that event would affect the way we think and live today. And that's what Paul says here. Look at what he says in in the verses to follow. Verse 3, But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. What in the world is Paul talking about? You see, there was a problem in the church at Corinth, a problem with believers in that particular day. And I would suggest to you it's a problem that we face today as well. You know what they were doing? They were comparing themselves to one another. They were evaluating. They were sizing one another up. They were saying, I just want you to know, by the way, I happen to be of of Paul. And others were saying, well, you know, that's that's good for you. But I happen to be of of Apollos. You know, he's the one uh, who uh, was eloquent of speech. He was mighty in the scriptures. And he happens to be the one I associate with. You see, they were they were looking at one another and sizing one another up spiritually and making an evaluation and a judgment. 
And Paul says, you know what? That doesn't mean a whole lot to me. To me, he says, do you see it in verse three? To me, it's a, a very, a very small thing that I might be examined by you or by any human court. And to be honest, Paul says, you know what? I don't even examine myself. Now, what do we know that Paul isn't saying here? Paul isn't, bless you, Paul isn't saying here that, you know what, it doesn't matter how you live. Just do whatever you want. Paul isn't saying what our culture is saying, that if it feels good, go right ahead and do it. See whatever you see and do whatever you want to do and listen to whatever you want to listen to and say whatever you want to say. Live however you want to live. Take this concept of amazing grace and twist it uh, to allow for licentious living. That's not what Paul is saying. Jude warns against that. Paul does. What shall we say? Shall we continue to sin that grace might abound? What's his strong response to that? No way. Certainly not. God forbid it. Meganoita. How should we ever take this wonderful concept of grace and wrongly conclude that where there is, where there is sin, there is grace. So let's sin more so there's more grace. Paul says, God forbid it. So be reminded in this passage that Paul, when he says what he says in verse 3, is not saying it doesn't matter how you live. All of Paul's instruction, the, the letters from Paul, his writings teach about the importance of a worthy walk. I have a dear friend serving the Lord Jesus in Michigan these days, but he was uh, one of the vice presidents at Emmaus when I was serving in a, a similar capacity. A lifelong friend, his name is Dr. Steve Witter, and he taught me and many others this expression that uh, is memorable if you uh, write it down and work on it. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. I'll say it again, just in case. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Sometimes we use the expression, talk is what? Cheap. Sometimes we say that actions speak louder than words. And so Paul in this passage is not saying live however you want to live. Do whatever you want to do. His teaching, as we interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, his teaching all throughout conveys just the opposite. It does matter. We are supposed to walk in a worthy manner. What he is conveying in verse 3 is crucial for us to understand. And the concept here is that it's not our job or responsibility to evaluate and determine one's spiritual standing before Christ and get caught up in the who's who, if you will. He says to me, that's a very small thing that I'd be examined by you or by any human court. It's interesting that he uses the language of a courtroom where a, a judge would reside and evaluate and determine 
And he uses that language here and he says, listen, I'm not doing this to you. And I'm not going into your courtroom for you to do it to me. And to be honest with you, Paul says, I don't even examine myself in that way. But then he continues the language of the courtroom, doesn't he? Notice what he says uh, after verse 3. If I were to do that, he says, I don't do that in verse 3. I don't even examine myself. But if I were to do that, I can make this statement. I have a hard time making this statement. So do you. As far as I can tell, I am conscious of nothing against myself. I'm not doing it, but if I were to do it, if I were to examine myself and be the one who judges and evaluates as I take a good look in, my conscience is clear. Isn't that a powerful statement for Paul to make? But then he uses terminology from the courtroom. What does he say? This doesn't get me off the hook. By this, I am not acquitted. You see, they were, they were caught up with horizontal spiritual evaluation. Instead of keeping in mind on the daily, on the moment by moment, that I as a believer will one day stand before the righteous judge, my Savior, and he's going to evaluate it all. Do you think about that much? The doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, it can and should change the way we think and live. He says, by this I am not acquitted. Do you see it with me in verse 4? And he ends by saying, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And that's the opinion that matters. And I want to say to you this, this truth, this teaching, this understanding should be freeing to you. The Lord Jesus Christ knows our heart. The Lord Jesus Christ knows and understands our motives. The Lord Jesus Christ knows when we have not been acknowledged or where we have been treated poorly or unfairly. The Lord Jesus knows it all and he's going to set it all straight at the judgment seat of Christ. That day, that day, that day. And he says, I, I don't get off the hook even if my conscience is clear. Because the one who examines me is the Lord. James talks about uh, the judge seated in his chambers, about to come out and do this grand evaluation. All rise! Here comes the judge. The book of Revelation says this, the uh, unveiling or disclosure in, in Revelation says at the end of it, of the Lord Jesus. Behold, I am coming quickly and with me, what? Reward. Paul clearly communicates that reward is a healthy and proper motivation for godly living. And so he says this at the end of verse 4, by this I am not acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And then he concludes, as I am too, if you're wondering, then he concludes by saying this, therefore, what question should we ask when we see the word therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? In light of this reality, in light of the fact that the divine vertical evaluation is the one that matters most, he says, in light of verses 
three and four especially, but all of this context, one through four, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Were they doing that? Nod your head if you're still with me. I know that time change just rocks our world, right? Get over it. You're going to be okay. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. They were doing that. And guess who else does it? We do. All the time. And you know what he says emphatically? Stop it! Stop doing that! Stop passing judgment before the time. But instead, he says this word that I don't always love, but it's the word we are to embrace. He says, wait. Wait. The word wait conveys two things. It conveys this idea of uh, patient endurance. But the word wait also conveys the idea of allowing him, our great God, who directs our path, allowing him to decide the terms. So life, all of it, is his to control and his to direct and his to orchestrate with his tender care. And so Paul says to us an important word. Stop passing judgment before the time. But instead, wait. 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 Patient endurance, allowing him to decide the terms. He goes on to say as we finish this section what we should be looking for and waiting for, and really has the judgment seat of Christ in mind. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both, two things, watch it, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and secondly, disclose the motives of men's hearts. So it's all examined at the judgment seat of Christ, Not only what we have done or haven't done, but the motives behind the doing. Both those things, Paul says, that's what we're waiting for. That's what ought to motivate the way we think and live. The fact that the righteous judge is coming, who is going to perfectly, there's freedom here, perfectly examine all that we have said and all that we have done. And then he concludes by saying, and you know what the result will be? And if you want more detail, there's more detail in the previous chapter. But in this section, he says, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Don't you love that? There was a group back in the day, my day, 80s-ish, called Jeff Moore in the Distance. Anybody remember Jeff Moore in the Distance? A couple of you, thanks for coming today. Jeff Moore in the distance, they sang a song that I won't sing to you, you're welcome, but a song that conveyed this message, a ballad, uh, a thought-provoking song that said this, when all is said and when all is done, what will be said about what I have done? This section concludes by saying each man's praise That's verbal affirmation. That's my primary love language. I love that. Each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, there's two interpretations of that last expression. One you're going to love and one you're not going to love so much. 
but one is that everybody at the judgment seat, regardless of circumstances, will receive this verbal praise. I love that one. Don't you love that one? The other one is this understanding is that those who, after going through the judgment seat of Christ and who have stuff, stewardship stuff that remains, will receive uh, that praise from God. Regardless, it's a grand motivation to be reminded we are supposed to be under rowers for Christ. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve. And we are supposed to take good care of all that he's entrusted to us and wait until that grand evaluation where the righteous judge will evaluate everything that we have done, but also the motives behind the doing. I close with a quick story. Quick, I promise. There was a gentleman who had a custom at his season of life to read at breakfast with a cup of coffee and perhaps a, a small morsel uh, to, to read the obituaries. Any of you do that these days? I don't quite understand it, but this guy did. And you know what he did? He had the rare and unique opportunity of reading his own. You see, his brother had died, but they ran the wrong report. Can you imagine that experience? And as he read, listen, as he read how he would be regarded, remembered, what might be on his tombstone, if you will, he was disheartened and discouraged. You see, because this individual was famous for, known for, the production of weaponry and dynamite that could take the lives of hundreds and thousands of people. And so he read this acknowledgement of his great invention and accomplishments and how that would be linked to death. And so he made a determination having the rare occasion to read his own obituary. And he said, I don't want to be remembered that way. Instead, he set forth in purpose to be remembered for things of peace and nobility, if you will. You see, Alfred Nobel read his own report. He read how he would be regarded and remembered. And he didn't like it. So he changed it and put forth efforts that we now know are related to the Nobel Peace Prize. We might not agree, agree with everyone who receives such. But what a great and unique opportunity to know how you'd be remembered and to do something about it. What do you want on your tombstone? Father, help us, I pray. Help us, I pray, to purpose anew and afresh to be servants, under rowers of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and faithful, trustworthy stewards who take good care of everything that has been entrusted to it. It's all yours. So help us to take good care of it. And may we remember, as Paul did and as Paul taught, the significance of the, and the importance of the judgment seat of Christ. That day, that day, that day. And may we wait for that and not pass judgment before the time, but allow the righteous judge, the one who will evaluate perfectly, to have the final say. 
And may that motivate us to, to fight uh, the good fight, to finish the course, the race that is set before us, to keep the faith, that which has been entrusted to us. Father, help us to consider our question for today. What do we want on our tombstones? And may we long for two words to come to mind, servants and stewards. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.